Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. One of the persistent themes of our daily show has been the supposed crisis, perhaps even death now, of globalism. Uh, John Ralston Saul, for example, last week suggested that this crisis of globalism, uh, dressed up as the pandemic, has been coming for about 20 years. We haven't really had anyone on the show to defend globalization or globalism. So I thought today it'd be great to, to talk to my old friend, uh, Christopher Schroeder, uh, former CEO of healthcentral.com, very senior executive at lots of internet startups, now a uh, an early stage uh, venture fund investor in Dubai, Singapore, Sao Paulo, the author of Startup Rising, a book about innovation in the Middle East, a guy who more than anyone else, I think, knows the world and the world of uh, globalized technology startups. Uh, Chris, are we at the end of globalization? Uh, First of all, it's great to be with you, Andrew, and thanks for thinking of me. You know, I think in my journeys and travels around the world, um, I've really asked better questions now than I actually feel that I'm an expert in any of it uh, because there's just so much and so much complexity and nuance in it all. Um, But there are too many things that have happened that are interconnected, I think, among people around the world, certainly from a macro business perspective, but also in the way people exchange things because of technology that I just don't believe uh, you put that genie completely back in the bottle. Um, It doesn't mean that politicians aren't going to try to do so. It's in fact, I think as your previous guest probably suggested, uh, very politically palpable, palatable um, to uh, really say, folks, look, this crisis shows us that we really need to be separate. It shows us that we should be protecting our borders. It shows us that we need our own supply chains. And and there are elements of that that absolutely should be rethought. Um, But I think if this thing has taught us anything, it is when we are globally connected and transparent and sharing data and sharing best practices, unbelievably better things happen. And despite what governments may decide to do uh, top down, the reality is now that 60, 70, 80% of humanity has a supercomputer in their pocket as a smartphone, they will seek out great ideas and great innovation and great reading and great thought uh, from everywhere in the world. You have essentially all of uh, human knowledge at your fingertips essentially for free. And I don't see how that gets simply blocked out entirely although there will be certainly efforts to do it, and we've seen efforts to do it in China and other places. Uh, you mentioned China last week. Uh, our mutual friend Parag Khanna was on the show, arguing, as in his last book, that the future is Asia, not the Asia of China, but the Asia of South Korea and Japan and Singapore. Uh, I know one of the uh, hubs of your uh, next billion ventures um, fund is in Singapore. In your view, are there some countries in the world, particularly the Singapore's and South Korea's and Japan's of East Asia, that are coping with this crisis better than other countries? Uh, first of all, I think that Parag's book is one of the one of the most important books that I've read in the last year, and I agree with a great deal 
of it overall. You have tremendous uh, economic growth happening in Asia. You have an unleashing because of technology in large part. Um, some of the greatest innovation of hardworking people were very thoughtful. You have uh, complete access to technology and it's just been embedded in people's lives. And it's literally been kind of a leapfrog. This was certainly true in China, but it is true elsewhere in Asia now where folks who never had credit cards or didn't really use them are now kind of skipping that and are becoming you know, comfortable in mobile payments and mobile transactions uh, in a way that, um, you know, I think that they have really sort of leapt into leadership roles in many aspects of it. There are many challenges there as well, which we can talk um, more about. But I think, look, it, in a way, to say that the future is Asian is tempting and interesting because of the numbers and because of the economic growth. But I think two things. One is, generally speaking, the future is everywhere. And that the idea that one geographic location is winning it, uh, to me, almost has a suggestion of a geography bias, if not a racial bias at some point. The opportunity is everywhere. The things that are happening in Asia, I see in Latin America, I see it even in parts of Africa, certainly has happened in Europe and the West. And then secondly, on your specific question about is Asia handled the virus uh, better, I think the jury is still out. I think we'll have to see what happens with reinfection and other areas. Singapore is a fantastic country. And I think has done many very smart things. But of course, as you know, in the last 24 hours, they've had to lock down again. And I think, frankly, all of us should not get into this conversation about who's doing what better. I think we should all concede that all of us could have done much better from the beginning of this. And all of us can learn best practices from each other. And all of us should walk pretty humbly because we don't yet really know what we've got here fully. And to me, that is the most important conversation. It goes back to your initial point. That's the essence of globalism which is an ability to compare notes and to engage transparently, respectful of your terms, respectful of your interests, but the same way that you can really get the expertise uh, and great experiences and lessons learned anywhere. Um, that's going to be crucial for the next catastrophe, and it's going to be crucial for the next opportunity. You might dodge this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. You're, you are talking to me from your home in Washington, D.C. Yeah. You are in addition to all the other things you've done, I don't know quite how you've done all this in, in your life, but you also were once chief of staff for James Baker in the uh, senior Bush administration. So you're a, a keen and an experienced um, observer of, of, of American politics. Uh, could it be argued, many people are, that this represents the fundamental crisis of American neoliberalism and the dysfunctionality of the American state, particularly in the Trump age? Very quickly, I, I was, a, I was a, a staff assistant, a special assistant on the staff of Secretary Baker and worked very closely with Bob Zellick. Um, but anyway, um, look, I do believe that well before this crisis, and this crisis is calling it out, I think, in very powerful ways, um, there is a really serious debate going on in the world about what is it that is best in a democratic structure and global connectedness that you and I have assumed during our entire life. What are the benefits of that versus what are the challenges of it? And are there other paths which are more appealing? And we see now in Asia, certainly with China, we have seen in parts of the Middle East, we see a representation in both Mexico and Brazil for very different reasons. A model that says a very, very strong state, a state that can even become authoritarian and in some instances will become totalitarian, has its problems. But, you know, you'll get the chance to live in a beautiful city that's highly functioning with airports and trains that are highly functioning with mobile money that moves. You can make a better living than your parents ever thought they could in the past. 
en masse. It's not just a 10% of the people who are doing it, but a broader group of people. And this argument is, if you're willing to sacrifice your political views and your freedom of speech at any given moment, you can have a very foundationally important and good life. You know, I am, forgive me if it sounds old school, a firm believer in democracy as the, you know, the least best system ever been invented, as I think Churchill said. It has many flaws and many challenges. It cannot move deliberately. But the fact of the matter is, with that comes a check and a balance into authority and authoritarianism, uh, which I think is foundationally important, particularly when things get bad. I mean, people often talk about how authoritarian regimes are highly successful and efficient doing good things well. And certainly, if you want to bet on someone building a very, very successful and modern airport very quickly, that model yields it. But I think those who can do things very well, authoritarian-wise, can also do things very bad well, authoritarian-wise as well. And I think that we need to keep that in balance. And um, we are being tested. We have been being tested well, I think, before Donald Trump. I think that there have been issues of things that we Americans have taken for granted in terms of our infrastructure, our place in the world, are willing to accept a rising of other parts of the world in a respectful, co-authored way that challenge this idea that we should be looking backwards. Somehow or other, we should hope to become what we were in the 80s or 90s because that is some uh, forever American thing. I believe the challenge that we have right now is to think differently, to think about what are the great strengths that we have, what is powerful in our institutions, defend those institutions for the flaws that they will also render, and at the same time realize that we are in a very, very different world and it's going to take a different kind of engagement. But the idea that the challenges we have in America now are such that we should yield the right of people's ability to throw folks out of office if they do not perform, I think this is just a terrible, terrible thought without any precedent in history that would justify it. We know the poster childs of this kind of regressive anti-democratic authoritarianism, the Bolsonaros and Trumps and perhaps even Boris Johnsons and Orbans of the world. Do we have any poster childs for liberal globalization? Is it Emmanuel Macron, for example, in France? Or might we look at countries themselves? I know you're quite familiar with some of the innovation now going on in Estonia. I think, uh, and you've written quite beautifully about this in your last book, that you see these kind of city or smaller nation states who have just decided to not base themselves on kind of a vision of looking backwards, but a vision of what they can leverage to look forward and have done very, very powerful things in different models. The Singapore model is different than the Korea model. The Korea model is different than the Estonia model. Um, but they have all shared this ambition to unleash the new generation of people that dominate their populations to have great potential and to utilize technology in ways uh, that can really embrace better impact for people's lives overall. Um, but as a friend of mine said, it's not my quote, but a friend of mine said, we kind of live in an era of wolves right now. This is a very different era of leadership globally than you and I experienced, for example, back when I worked for Secretary Barrier and uh, you know, President Bush, the father, um, you know, where you had Margaret Thatcher and you had um, Helmut Kohl and you had Gorbachev and you had a very kind of interesting Deng Xiaoping. You had a very different array of people to deal with. And um, this will take real effort and proactive action for folks to be able to navigate into the kind of future that I described that I hoped for before. Yes, there are absolutely places of hope in it, I think, right now. I think, um, well, you know, Germany has its challenges, but I think there and uh, other parts of Europe, I think, are, are very interesting there. 
Um, I don't put Korea in the same uh, category as an authoritarian regime, though it's obviously not in a pure Western democracy sense entirely either. Um, but no, I think that there are models out there, but I think the most important model that we should focus our attention on as Americans is America. And um, what is happening now gives us an opportunity to step up and really ask what kind of country and what kind of infrastructure are we willing to defend? Not to sit back and just sort of see the way it plays out, but to get on the field. I think that this crisis has told everyone they need to be on the field. This is not an era anymore of kind of waiting to see what might happen and sort of figure out where we might be, but to actually have an opportunity in a very optimistic and hopeful way to step up. Last thing I would share with you on this is so much of the global engagement that I witness and I think is impossible to put back is not top down anyway, it's bottom up. It's this new generation up to our generation who are very comfortable with technology and are solving problems at scale by learning from each other, engaging with each other, co-authoring with each other. Um, and so I think that is going to put increased pressure that the top down will be responsive and respectful over time to the same needs. You talk about, I'm quoting you here, people need to get on the field now. They can't stay on the sidelines. No. Um, I'm assuming one way to get on the field is what, to become an entrepreneur. Give me some other ways in which people can, to, to borrow your language, get on the field. I think that the ways are available almost in anything that we do in life that we decide that our mission is better than just being hyperly focused on what we're trying to do individually. Because being on the field could be being more active in your community. Being on the field absolutely has meant the, the countless numbers of people who are sewing masks right now are working um, in incredible ways to be able to get additional medical supplies to hospitals in New York and California and Washington State and other places. These are all people on the field who are struggling, as you point out in an earlier conversation you and I had, had are really struggling day to day, but are finding time in their day to day life to say, what can I do to matter? What verse can I contribute to this play that we are all in, you know, whether we like it or not? More boldly, it means people stepping up and saying, I'm not just going to complain about the politicians when I think about them, but I'm going to get on the field and run. And I believe that we've seen in both parties, by the way, some amazing young women and men, uh, many of whom served in Iraq and Afghanistan, have been tempered by that experience and are really looking for a co-authorship in discussion and how that we build our, company, uh, our country going forward. And then as you allude, I think that the entrepreneurs are almost by each individual global day one. They literally are getting up in the morning saying, I've got a problem in my teeth I want to solve. I now have access to capabilities and technology that allow me to reach customers at a fraction of the cost uh, that it ever was before with much greater ease than ever it was before. And I can see right now that my problem can expand not only regionally but within my country, but any country is available to me if I have my ambitions to go after it and I can find the right partners to do it. And that, for me, is deeply on the field. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you were, again, in your illustrious history, CEO of HealthCentral.com. I know you're not necessarily an expert on health technology or health systems, but you know more than most. Do you have a sense of how this crisis is going to get fixed? Is it going to be through the, this, this supposed vaccine? Is it going to be through testing or a combination or a wheat? having the wrong conversations about fixing the crisis? You know, I actually think that we finally are having a lot of the right conversations about this. Um, you know, the fact that there are nine governors that still have not asked people to stay at home right now is uh, perplexing to me based on the basic science that I 
read, which is no different than what you read and, and anyone listening reads. I'm no expert on this, except to say that I think that the data is very incomplete and that we should not jump to too many conclusions and we should be very circumspect about what happens and, and focus on what we know that works in the short term and then think about how we can be supportive in the medium term. And the short term is stay home. We all know that the most important thing we can do right now is to give distance to this and allow the medical system to, to function as best as it can as these heroes, as women and men, you know, are working around the clock under progressively impossible circumstances. I think in the short to medium term, all of us touch people who are suffering in some way. And it's an opportunity for us to make sure that we're checking in with people in our community, checking in with people who may be older or maybe uh, navigating other kinds of illnesses. But it just could be anybody who's been, you know, working hard and doesn't have a paycheck right now. And there's an opportunity for us to just be kind of supportive with each other as well as the government's been doing these, you know, massively dramatic things to put in it overall. Um, in the long term, it's very hard to speculate what's going to happen. Obviously, at some point, the vaccine will be the answer to this, but that will be, I think, at least a year away from the experts I talk to and what I hear from. And so I think this is going to be an interesting period as we figure out how do we test enough people, because obviously we've been dramatically slow and behind on testing. Are there possibilities to create uh, red or green zones where people can go to university and other people will have to maybe telecommute for a while? Um, but all of that we're going to have to work through uh, together. We'll be able to leverage some experiences that we see of uh, parts of the world that had this before us, but we're already seeing that those parts of the world are now beginning to navigate whether more disease has come in and or whether there'll be reinfection. And it goes back to my original thesis, which is we have to walk humbly and we have to be deeply engaged uh, with other people and get the best experience uh, that we can, and we'll figure this out together. Um, but this is going to be a slog for a while, and we just have to prepare ourselves for it and I think bring the right spirit to it because I don't have any doubt that we'll get through it. Finally, Chris, I've been asking this of everyone uh, I talk to in The Daily Show. Uh, to get through this crisis, to strengthen us, perhaps to entertain us, uh, give me a book that people might a book or two that people might be reading or should be reading uh, in this time of of, uh, of crisis? You know, I, I was thinking about this a little bit. Another friend had asked me this, and there are a few, I read a lot. Like I made it a goal last night, year to read over 100 books, and I did. I went to China um, in October, actually, to visit the tech community there, and I read about 25 books on China alone uh, in preparation for it. So I, I love reading, and I think it's very important for us at this time. You know, from a, for a sense of perspective, people probably have enough flu on the mind. Um, but John Barry's book from about 10 years ago, uh, maybe six years ago, called The Great Influenza, was an amazingly humbling and powerful telling of that uh, terrible flu epidemic of 1918. What I found interestingly, and I think the analogy is a little bit closer to the degree that analogies matter in these moments at all, um, is that the 1957 uh, influenza uh, uh, or the virus spread of 1957-58 actually is, I think, more similar to what we have today than uh, happened in 1918. And I haven't found a good book on it, but there's some great articles that are worth uh, Googling it. Uh, to your point about where we are in globalism, you know, I think it's important to understand China. And as I said, I read a lot of books about it, but one of the most beautiful ones I read was a pretty recent book by one of the great uh, novelists there, a man named Yu Hua, who wrote China in 10 Words. And he literally takes 10 words like leadership and whatever and describes in one part personal memoir and one part really explaining how people in China sort of process and think about their place in the world today and their history. It's not 
an academic book. It's not a, a political book. Um, but it, I found it actually one of the most powerful and hopeful ones in my travel. If you want to look forward in the future and have a little bit fun while you're at it, if you're a chess fan, I just finished Gary Kasparov's recent book called Deep Thinking, which not only talks about what it was like to play chess against uh, computers, but really is one of the more thoughtful analysis of the potential and challenges with AI of almost anything that I've, uh, I've read at all. And I must say, I'm sorry, I was just planning a trip with uh, my son and my wife to go see uh, civil rights sites in um, the South. And we have obviously had to postpone that. But I read Andrew Young's memoir called Easy Burden, which I think is one of the best books I've read about the civil rights movement. So I think all those are, are fantastic. And, and one last thing I'll leave you with, which isn't a book, but since it's relevant this week, um, I have been helping this amazing global hackathon. It's probably the great way to wrap up a conversation about globalism. So six young entrepreneurs in Estonia with the president of Estonia and the government of Estonia about 10 days ago launched a hackathon on their tech platform they built for other purposes to get ideas to help help on um, on COVID. And the ideas are not biotech. It's not like solutions of that nature. But it is, they actually got proposals on making cheaper ventilators and platforms for how families can engage better with each other or, or get part-time work and stuff like that. Uh, 1,600 people participated in it. 40 ideas were submitted. Eight are now actually being implemented. Anyway, the internet being the internet, um, uh, everyone heard about it and literally just took their platform and, and built a Slack channel with it. And in literally one week, 40 countries and 150,000 participants um, are doing the same thing right now. And so these guys, I mean, these young six team of six, now maybe 15, said, we're going to have a global hackathon on April 9th. And so if you go to theglobalhack.com, you'll see where they're really getting prepared for maybe as many as a million people who on April 9th, you know, in partnership with their governments and sharing best practices around the globe are going to be looking for solutions to help on COVID. And, you know, hopefully some powerful things come from it technologically, but it also shows you what stepping up can mean when that many people around the world want to say, I have an idea and I want to try to implement it in the name of making not only my country, uh, but everyone suffering from this thing better. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.